Welcome to the show. I am so over the moon excited because today I am sharing my friend and the Autistic Art Club founder and hostess with the super mostest, Zoe McCormick. I am super excited to have her. She has created the most beautiful, special, and truly unique spaces called the Autistic Art Club. I'm in it. I am like, the, I told her I'm the number one fan. I'm always running around inviting people all over the place to come join us because it is so amazing. She has put so much of her talents, her time, and her heart into this. Guys, welcome to the show. I want you to meet Zoe McCormick. Welcome to the Mind Your Autistic Brain talk show, the talk show for late identified autistics where each week you will hear the autism journey of another late identified person, including the hardest part, the best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week. And don't miss these special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostest, Social Audie. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Zoe, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for saying yes, because I know sometimes we've got busy lives and spoon, spoon allotments, so I'm super excited that you're here. Zoe, share with everybody what the art club is. How did it come about? What was this beautiful, amazing idea that you had that, that came to life? Um, so I guess like when, like, so I guess when I first got diagnosed with autism, I was really looking for like some sort of like peer community supports. Um, and like, there is like some Facebook groups here and there, but I felt like there was nothing really that I was particularly looking for. And then kind of at the same time, I was, um, attending like, um, different support groups for my mental health so I would have been going to like recovery based and um, peer support groups for my mental health and I felt like I felt like there was like the autism stuff and my mental health stuff and I feel like there was nothing that kind of like brought the two together um and so I guess then I just decided to set up the Facebook group the autistic art club where like a kind of people who have autism or autistic that like art can like join the Facebook group and like that was grand and it was like growing and growing. And then I just felt like I really wanted to like meet these people somehow. And like, I don't have a background in art at all. I'm just, I just really love art and it's really helped me and kind of my own recovery and just managing kind of my life. I just feel like it really helps me. So I just decided to run a, like a pilot kind of four weeks um, I just came up with like really easy activities and kind of just see who would come um, and like loads of people came so and um, yeah so it's kind of just been going since then and like I mean a lot of the people who come have been there from like the very first one I including yourself I think you came to the very first one too um, and like you know I suppose it really is just like a passion thing for me like I'm not an art teacher I'm not an artist I have absolutely no art training um, so I just kind of use different ideas um, that I've come across or things that I think would be cool for us to try um, and go with that. I feel like with the art club, the art is nearly kind of secondary to it, like in, in what happens in the art club. Like it's really just about coming along, meeting other autistic adults and just ranting about our lives or not, or just having your mic and camera off and just listening to everyone. Um, I feel like the art is a really good way for us to like meet because the pressure is off. You don't like, you don't have to talk if you don't want to, you can talk for the whole time if you want. Like it's, um, yeah, so it's kind of, I feel like it's become very much like a peer support group um, for autistics that kind of incorporates art into it. It totally has. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's like made Saturdays so special to me is because, you know, for those four weeks, I'm like, I get just to go hang out with my friends and like create stuff because I don't always 
have time during the week or I, I do have time, I don't choose to make time. There's a difference. I don't always choose to allocate my time in that way. Although I love it. And it's one of the things that really restores me. But it's also the restoration of the connection with my now group of friends because I've made new friends. And it's a global community, which is really, really fantastic. Because you're in Ireland, I'm in the United States. There's people from yeah. all over that join yeah. us. And it's just really fun to not only create some really neat projects and share it, but what I love is just seeing how each person approaches a particular subject or topic. I mean, you know, when we did oh, like just the bees or just when we just do anything, I mean, just to see how each person approaches it with different materials, different medium, um, what people choose to focus on, like for the detail. I mean, it's just yeah. really incredible to me. I just love seeing all the, the, the things that come about at the end, but it's the conversations that happen in between that are just so amazing. Yeah. And I think the special thing as well is like, you don't have to be an artist to come along. Like so many people come along who haven't picked up a pencil since they were in school. Like, it's not, you know, we have people who are professional artists, but we also have people who like aren't or like who only do art at the Autistic Art Club. And yeah. that's like what me. I don't say it. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is fantastic. And that's what I love too, is that it's it's structured in a way that like is truly speaks to my spoon allocation. It's like, okay, here's four weeks and we're going to take two weeks off and we'll do four weeks and we'll take two weeks off because everybody needs that break. Everybody needs that downtime to not have, even if you love and enjoy something, just the obligation of it sometimes is like stressful <laughs> for me. I don't know about anybody else. I think it must yeah. be you too because you, you were pretty smart about thinking through that. <laughs> but it's just so wonderful. I mean, I, and that's the thing. It's like, I have always been just a huge proponent for speaking out to say everyone, everyone is an artist in some way. We are all creating, not just in paint or pencil, but in food, in clothing, in the way that we arrange our bookshelves. Everything that we do in our life in some way, in some aspect, we are designing, arranging, being intentional about curating the visual or even the tactile. I mean, if you collect squishies and you love the way different things feel, you're an artist. You've just created this tactile experience. I mean, yeah. if you have just this very narrow um, definition of what art is, you're really missing the creative rest in your life, right? Yeah, and I think sometimes I think the way kind of art is introduced to us kind of probably puts us off as adults. You know, like it's, you know, when you do art in school, like you're graded on it. And so like, I think that kind of makes us have a very like, you know, oh, I can't do that because like you have to be good at art to do art. Um, but, you know, like I, I, um, I never did art until last year so and like I found you know it's one of those things the more you do it like the, the better you're gonna get it's not nobody just you know it does photorealism on their first go um you know <laughs> exactly um, yeah. and it's and, and that's the thing too I love about how you have sort of set up this this container this vessel of just come in just enjoy it just try do what do it the way you want to do it. You don't have, you want to share it. Great. If you don't want to share it, that's okay. Because you've approached it, or I feel like you've approached it in a way that is just, Hey, this is just for you to come and just be you just connect with a part of you that, that maybe you haven't been connecting with for a while or, or just come have fun or just, you don't even have to have fun. You just come up and be, <laughs> You could just show up yeah. and be, you know, you don't yeah. have to turn your camera on. You don't have to turn your mic on. You don't ever have to say anything. You don't have to engage. But if you just want to hang back, that's cool, too. You know, and yeah. I think that's so important because we really do. We've got we, we had this internal judge. where it's like, yeah, my stuff doesn't look nearly as good as their stuff does. Or, you know, I'm 
I'm not very talented. I'm not very creative because that's not what this is about, really. You know, like you started with, it was like, how do I take my mental health? How do I take my need for expression or expressing myself or my feelings? How do I bring that together? And really, that's what this does. This gives this amazing place to just come and sort of have some time together, have some connection, have some expression of yourself in whatever way that works for you. And it's mental health. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And I think kind of my main ethos kind of with setting it up is that it it's like includes as many people as possible. So like I know we have like we go on the Zoom and we do the Zoom. Like some people have their camera off, some people have their mic off, some people just chat through the chat or whatever but then there's other people who like find the idea of a zoom absolutely terrifying um and so I always kind of set it up in a way that they can still participate without going to the zoom um and I always kind of try and explain as much as possible as to like how it kind of runs um because like there are kind of a good few people that would have kind of made, like emailed me like what they did and then, like, I had, there have been some people who did that for a few weeks and then they came to a, a Zoom, you know, like, so it's just, I think it's really done in a way that works for autistic people in that, you know, there's not just one way that we do things. Like, we all, we're, like, I don't even know how I'm doing it because I'm so anxious myself. Like, when I go to other Zoom meetings, I'm like, oh, God, I'm not going to say anything. Um, So, like, I don't even know how I'm doing it, but I feel like, so many people get benefit from it that I just feel like okay this is something that has to continue um and yeah I guess like for anyone who like would like to come but wants to do it in a different way like I'm always open to kind of like shifting things around or having people engage in whatever way like they feel they can I think that's so great and I I noticed that and I liked that and that was one of the things I'd even shared with several of my Friends that are just like, yeah, I don't do Zoom, Carol Jane. You know I don't do Zoom. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but the really cool thing is Zoe does like this little blog article that she sends out on Friday and it's got all the stuff laid out and you can just get that. You don't have to go to the Zoom. You don't have to people yeah. it if you don't want to people. If you don't want to people, you don't yeah. have to. And, you know, I'm always telling everybody, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> nobody yeah. can nobody can make you do anything but you and you don't have yeah. to <laughs> and I love that because yeah. you really do and you reach out and you're just like hey if you just want to email me your stuff you don't even have to share it in the Facebook group you don't have to yeah. post it on Instagram you don't have to do anything but if you want to participate and, and sort of have something to kind of guide your art because sometimes having those prompts just sort of frees yeah. you from having to like make a decision on that you know and I appreciate yeah. that <laughs> yeah exactly it's kind of like here's an activity you could do and if you want to do it do it um and I think like I suppose um I've had other kind of groups reach out to me and ask me how I'm making it so inclusive and I'm like when you run an event you can't just have one way that people can engage with the event you need to have several different ways um you can't like you know so many events are just like here you go to this and that's it um but even I know people have asked me if I will do like YouTube videos of instructions, which I, I plan to do in the future, but I just need to get like the proper equipment and uh, all of that. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of a key, key point when we're putting on events is to have several, think about several different ways that you can, you can access people through that event. That's really important. And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes an autistic-led autistic event versus a non-autistic-led autistic event. It's just mm -hmm. like, it, that's one of the things that I am so, try to be so aware of in Mind Your Autistic Brain. I started the blog and started, you know, and my friend Becca is helping me do transcriptions of the talk show because that's what people needed. That's what people in the community had asked for. You know, and it's, we all have our own communication styles or preferences. And the thing is that they vary. They are a wide variance. And also it's just about your comfort level to engage in things. And it's like, you know, you made a really good point earlier that you're, 
you're anxious and you're not necessarily comfortable and you're like, how in the world am I doing the Zoom? Why am I doing this? This is not the most comfortable <laughs> thing in the world for me. But it's the why. It's, it's your why behind that that makes the difference. Just like for me, I'm like, I don't want to have to get on camera all the time. I don't want to have to go talk to lots of people. I mean, I love to talk. I love to visit, but I don't want to do it all the time. It drains me. I'm exhausted. But what I look at, you know, I don't necessarily always have time to want to sit down and intentionally write something. You know, some days it's hard to just get my thoughts and my words. Other days it's easier to, you know, talk on camera. Other days it's easier to write. It's never a consistency. Thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) to the hot mess in the handbag that I am. But it's the why. You know, we do things because... Mm -hmm we know it has a greater purpose and it's not about serving ourselves. It's about serving yeah. and being of service to other people. And you do that. You do that, Zoe. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I guess that's what really keeps me going is, um, is that other people like need it as well and like benefit from it so much. And like, even when I take like the two week breaks, I always feel so guilty. I'm like, Oh my God, they're going to be like, what am I going to do on Saturday? Um, but like, I need to, I need to set it up that way so that I have a break and that like, I get to like, okay, I don't have to do zoom this week. Um, okay. so don't feel guilty. Yeah. Don't feel guilty. Cause <laughs> the rest of us are like, Oh, I can't wait till two weeks. But right now I need the weekend. I need this break. <laughs> <laughs> so don't feel that you need a break we okay. Need to. <laughs> okay we're with you we're with you <laughs> yeah yeah so Zoe what is your autism story how did autism come into your life and your world how did you learn that hey autism might be me um I guess my story I feel like it's very kind of unique um I so well in ways um like so I spent like 10 years in and out of mental health services being diagnosed with like everything um, and the treatments just never really, they might have treated like one aspect of an issue that I was having, but never really fully kind of explained why, you know, I, I really struggled in school. I left school early with like no qualifications. You know, I like I moved to London when I was 16 and was like, OK, this is this is going to be my life now. And like I just there's been really drastic things that's happened in my life and I could never really figure out like why um and so then last year um I spent three months in a psych ward like really really depressed suicidal everything else um and when I came out I got this psychologist this clinical psychologist and um I wasn't really sure even what to talk to her about I was just I I had no idea how to be in the room um and then after a few sessions, she was like, I think you might have some sort of social communication issues. And I was like, OK, she never mentioned autism, but like I Googled it as soon as I got home and like autism is what comes up. Um, so it was then when I was starting to think, oh, OK, she thinks I might be autistic. Um, so I went through the assessment and like, yeah, I came up really high on kind of all of the like tests and everything else so and you know like she had to like speak to my mom about like myself growing up and everything like that and like in my mom was like oh yeah that makes sense and I was like okay um so yeah it kind of happened that way I was just really lucky that I um was assigned a psychologist who happens to work with autistic teenagers in her other job um so I was just really lucky that she flagged it because um I wasn't self-diagnosed I like I had learned about autism in college but I had never thought of myself as autistic ever before that so I guess once that happened then I really started to I suppose like I feel like diagnosis gives you like a little toolkit on like how to kind of manage different things that you're struggling with and I felt like then by like looking at my sensory needs and that kind of thing which I'd never looked at before really helped me manage my kind of overwhelm and like this kind of I had this kind of pattern of like loads of production really really productive and then a crash and then really productive again and then a crash so I feel like that kind of really helped me figure out like 
to how to prevent those crashes. Um, and I think with my mental health has been pretty, pretty okay, like kind of since then, since I've been kind of working on my sensory kind of, I suppose my sensory health. Um, so yeah, it kind of happened that way, kind of through, through crisis. <laughs> So many of us come to it that way, Zoe. You're mm. not alone. Mm. So many of us come to it through major burnouts, through, you know, attempts at suicide or just real mm. hardcore ideation. It's just mm. that you're just sucked down into that mudslide where you just can't seem to get going. And just like the more you mm. try, the more stuck and covered in muck you get. And it's just feels really overwhelming. And at that point, sometimes it's just like, for the first time you say, hey, something's not right. I've been holding this in for like 40 years. Could somebody help me, please? And it's it's yeah. finally at that point that you get an answer. You get some causation for why. It's been so flipping hard and exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, because I felt like my kind of little narrative about me in my head was like, you're like a half person. You are like, there's something about you that's just, this world is just difficult. And I could never quite figure out why that was. Um, so I was like, why did I struggle so much at school? Like, I was good at school, but like, I would just refuse to do things for like a really logical reason. Um, and like my psychologist was like, yeah, it's because you're autistic. You had this like overly logical explanations for things at like 14. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, I never understood why I, I couldn't just like go with the grain and just like, you know, just do the things you're expected to do. Um, like it never it just never made sense to me why I was like that so like then when I got my autism diagnosis I was able to like completely reframe everything it's like you're not just like a bad like bold bad behaved child you know you like you literally have another way of thinking that nobody knew you had um so like yeah it just it made so much more sense for me afterwards so Zoe if you had to reflect back over your autism journey to this point, for you, what has been the hardest part or the biggest challenge? Um, I'd say just the the mental health crisis that I had, like, um, from about fourteen years old. Like, I would have, like, I've attempted suicide maybe like fifteen times. Um, you know, I was, um, like, I've had really bad periods of, um suicidality like on my last one I was suicidal like actively suicidal for nine months um and like those periods were just so tough um just feeling so low and not knowing why and not really not even knowing how to come out of it um and I suppose like looking back um you know when I'm in those periods I'm putting me into a psychiatric ward which are very unpredictable, they're very loud, there's lots of alarms going off all the time, there's lots of people. Um, it's like I can see now how that would actually make me worse, not better, because um just the whole sensory environment of a hospital is not ideal. Um and you know, just I suppose, yeah, the hardest thing and like the loneliness of it. Um, like I went through my whole college degree and I didn't make any friends and I wasn't really sure why. Um, so just the kind of loneliness of like, why do I struggle so much? Um, and not, not having the answers. And Zoe, I know that you have a background in policy. Mm. <laughs> <I> <laughs> so <do. laughs> having Having gone through that experience, and I know you you wrote a beautiful article about your experience in the Irish mental health care system, and some of the mm. experiences that you had were not positive. Yeah, you know, you had some really positive and helpful, beneficial things like your 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 identification that came out of that, but you also had some pretty tough experiences. So, my curiosity is because I know your heart. 
And I know that you, you are really one to speak out and want to, to help change the way things are with that background and in policy and reform. What would you like to see change with how the mental health care system operates, especially when it comes to people with sensory differences and sensory challenges? Because that truly is one of the hardest things is you need help, yet you're put into an environment that is probably the most toxic sensory environment that does not aid in your recovery. What are some of your thoughts on that? I would love to know. Yeah, um, I guess like that's kind of two questions because there's like what I would like the mental health system to look like, but then also, um, you know, autistic people in the mental health system as it exists right now. Um, So I suppose like autism, like my psychiatric nurse, never learned about autism when she was in college. And I think so many of us, you know, autism and mental health overlap so much that really the, there, there needs to be more education around that at the, their kind of college level. Um, and like for kind of all of those professionals that would be in those spaces, like, you know, occupational therapists, psychiatric nurses, um, social workers, whatever. And that education not just needs to be about autistic children, but like autistic adults too, because the majority of them will be working with autistic adults. Um, so that's kind of a key issue. And like, I have a brilliant psychiatric nurse who works with me every week. She's never, um, she she doesn't know anything about autism. Like she's just trying to like educate herself as she goes along. Um, and I think that's a big failure. Um, and I think if we were to educate more of those staff around autism and, you know, around autistic women, autistic adults, I think a lot of us might be picked up quicker um, instead of going through these like massive crises. And like, you know, and I mean, the truth is that some of us don't make it through um, that point. So I think it's really, really important that the education starts um, when they're training. Um, in terms of the mental health system, I suppose I would kind of be of more like I don't agree with any force or anything like that happening within the mental health system. I think that um, the patient's voice is the most important. Um, and, you know, I experienced some things that were kind of forced on me uh, in hospital and I would be like very, very strongly against those things. So I think um, in terms of um, met the mental health system, the patient's voice needs to be the primary um, primary decision maker in their care. Um, and, you know, it's kind of messy. Like some patients have a care plan. Some patients don't. Some patients are allowed um, outside for a walk. Some patients have never been offered or asked about um, the privilege. So I feel like it really depends on kind of who your doctor is, on what type of care you get. Um, and so Whoa, there's can no... we pause for a second? Yeah. <laughs> I want to pause for a second because you just said something that's just, wow, the privilege to go outside. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really um, a privilege to be able to I go know. outside? Like that's, that's, but that is honestly the, the belief and the mentality in that situation is that it's a privilege for us to allow you to go outside instead of looking at it as that is really a necessary part for most humans to be able to go outside. Oh, Zoe, man, that just, whoo. Yeah, and I think that right there, like with our, the way you're treated when you're in mental health care, like before um, I was hospitalized the last time, I spent three years on a degree learning all about health policy, you know, learning about the doctor patient relationship and the politics of that. And, um, you know, and I was learning all about like paternalism and healthcare and how, you know, you know, doctors will make decisions on the best of, of your behalf. And then when I was hospitalized myself, it felt like all of these things were, I could see them happening to me. Um, and, you know, while I, I'm, 
I feel like I may have been treated slightly better than other patients because obviously my education was known to my mental health team and everything. Um, but I still very much felt like you can't say too much or you can't oppose too much. You have to kind of tread very carefully. Um, and yeah, you're kind of, you're just, you're not seen as like a human who's just trying their best. Um, you know, you're seen like I remember times where I was having like I had a self-harm episode in the hospital and the nurses will be like, now, Zoe, you're in hospital. People in hospital don't do that. And it was really like, well, <laughs> yeah, we do. That's kind of why we're here. Um, and like you just be really talked to in a really condescending, patronizing way. And um, there's just. I speak a lot about just the lack of care that exists in mental health care because like you know if you were like if you were sick in a you know say you broke your leg the nurses would be so caring and so nice like oh are you okay how are you today whereas in psychiatric care it's like nobody really asks you how you are unless it's to tick a form tick a box on a form you know like it's just um missing humanity yeah 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 it's like they leave their humanity at the door and they walk in and they don't look at the person as a person they look at them as a chart they look at them Mm. as a problem to solve Mm. they look at them as a broken flawed or a person that isn't contributing to society And that term really, oh, I've heard it used. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're not contributing members of society. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, really? And when you say, you know, I was in healthcare. And healthcare, really? We, We just, it's like an oxymoron in the way that it's applied today. Because care is not part of it in so many aspects. It's like, sure, we're caring in some respects because that's what we agree to and that's what we think should be done. And it's, you know, when you look at it, you make such a good point. It's sometimes physicians and caregivers, and I use this word very loosely in in this context, caregivers make decisions that they think are best for the patient because they are not asking the patient. They don't care. They have deemed the patient somehow incapable of or that their opinion isn't valid enough to make their own decision or have input on what happens in their own lives because you weren't somehow strong enough to hold it together and not have a mental break. Somehow you are no longer valid and and have the ability to make your own decisions. That just is, oh, it's such a broken system and we got to do something to fix it. Yeah, um, yeah, and I guess like, you know, yeah, this, they make decisions for you. They don't ask you, um, but it's very much like just part of the culture that exists um, yeah. and their training. Like I've seen a research study recently that like came to the conclusion that compassionate care after self-harm um, reduces um, the incidence of self-harm. And I was just like, do you really need a research study in 2021 telling nurses to be compassionate to their patients in emotional distress? <laughs> and yes, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> because there is this whole other side where they're researching how you can be very direct and not be overly compassionate or overly sensitive. And I have heard a nurse tell a patient after they had attempted suicide, she looked at the patient and said, you have no right to your life if you're going to throw it away. You are wasting your life and you don't have the right to do that. It's just, The patient eventually said that that was the one thing that that kept him from 
attempting suicide in the future because he kept thinking about how mean she was and how, you know, she had said to him, you don't have the right to waste your life. But there, it's like, where do we find the balance? Where do we find the balance between just being kind and being compassionate in our care and also just helping someone to heal and guide them to a, a better place? Because that's really all we're all looking for. I don't care what your neurotype is. I don't care what your ability or disability is. That's all we all are looking for. We're looking for love. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking for compassion and understanding and connection. And those are all things that are not a privilege. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like those values are completely missing from, you know, our care systems. Um, You know, even like any, like the mental health system, the disability system, it's just all very paternalistic. There's, it's all very formal, you know, like you have to see a psychiatrist. If anyone's been to have an assessment with a psychiatrist, it's like sitting with a lawyer. Boy, did you nail that one? It's it's like interrogation 101. Yeah. It's like, okay, um, I didn't feel like I was being attacked till I walked in your office. <laughs> Thought I was supposed to I walk know. out of here feeling better. And it's just like I also feel like you're you're not gonna get the the most out of the patient that you want if you use these just tick box ticking methods. Um, it just feels very, um, I don't know what the word is, but it just feels very like clinical and sterile. Yeah. Sterile. Yeah. Um, and I always feel like you're probably going to get more from a patient if you just throw away that form and just sit down and just talk to them, look them in the eye, um, and just really find out. And like, I know when, like there are certain health professionals that have done that with me over the years and I will never forget them like I'll always remember how they made me feel and um, what they made me feel heard or they just talked to me about something random you know they weren't like looking at me like I was like dirty or that I was like wasting their time um you know people who just really heard me and how difficult I was finding things um I feel like we need more of that I think we need more of that everywhere. <laughs> really do. <laughs> really do. We need more of that in every aspect of our lives. Zoe, I love that you approach it and really think about it because that's one of the conversations that I've had with a friend of mine whose um, spouse is a physician. And in medical school, nothing is taught other than this one little section, not even a full chapter about autism, what it is. And it is not even accurate. (laughs) It is so outdated. (laughs) It is so narrow in its scope. And if you go back to the training, the education portion of where are the medical professionals, what are they learning in the very beginning? What are they learning about neurotypes? What are they learning about how the diversity in neurotypes also impacts the physical body? Because those two things are directly connected but it's not taught even in osteopathic medicine even in osteopathic medical school where you're not you're learning more about treating a whole patient and not just the individual organ like in a traditional medical school it's still not taught to the degree in which it should be or could be and some of those after having worked in administration in a hospital, that is all a hospital is. It is nothing but tick boxes following rules that the government sits down or insurance companies are the bigger one. Insurance mm-hmm. companies sit, sit down and dictate what patient care and treatment looks like. And in my book, and one of the, the things that I, I am always speaking out, and trust me, I got in some really hot, hot water speaking out in some of these meetings about how we were applying 
what was being dictated to us by insurance companies and the federal government on how we treated, how our care plans were set up for patients and for the for our staff to implement yeah. because they were broken and they did not serve the greater good. They didn't serve the patient. They didn't serve the caregivers. They didn't serve the families. They didn't serve the hospitals. And all so often it always came down to, are we profitable? Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's the medical big thing, schools isn't are it? the same. Yes. Yeah. Medical schools are the same. They're not in it for the education. They're in it for the profit of it. They're in it for how can we further our education dollars and how do we have an impact in the medical field with our students? It's not about how are we impacting people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really sad thing. I think because medicine is so in you know inaccessible. I know here like it's really expensive. You have to study for years. And I feel like the like there's the wrong type of people involved in it. So like, you know, when we have like issues that are very much related to poverty and socioeconomic economic status, you have these physicians that really don't truly understand what it's like to be um in that position. Um so yeah, totally understand. And I suppose on the kind of note of, you know, all these forms that are just like dictated to us by somebody else, I'd love to see a care plan that is created by us in that when you set up your care plan, like the patient, the autistic person, the mentally ill person decides what's going to be on that care plan and what's not on it and what is. Um, because I think that is the only true way we can have a true care plan because at the end of the day like I'm the only one who has to stick to the care plan um so you know so often I was just like handed this piece of paper with like my goals on it that hadn't even been discussed with me um and it's just it's just very tick boxy like yeah that's done now um you know <laughs> you see me grinning I am just like I'm busting <laughs> over here because you are so so right Zoe McCormick your task and your challenge, should you accept it, is that. <laughs> Seriously. Mm. Seriously. I'm not kidding. You are the person to do it. You are the person to create that care plan, mm. a real care plan. Because think about it an IEP that a child, a parent, and a child get in school, it's the same kind of care plan as the crap that they hand us when we're in a hospital. It's, mm. this is what I think your goals should be. This is going to get you to where you need to be. This is going to do this, this, and this for you. Yet you've not had absolute zero buy-in or input. Or if you did, it was really just so you could validate what they said you should do. Mm. It wasn't ever yeah. asking you. Because as we, as I've learned, as I share in Mind Your Autistic Brain, if you don't have a why, if you don't, if you haven't chosen your reason or purpose or your why for doing something, you have no driver. You have no motivation. You have no reason to do something. Mm. And you're going to yeah. hand me a care plan that I have had no participation or very little engagement or involvement in creating. And you want me to follow it and do it because that's what's going to be best for me. But you've never asked me what I want. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have been on no. a soapbox today. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I will not no. apologize because this needs to be talked about. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I do talk a lot about that kind of stuff because um, I think unless you've been a patient in a psychiatric unit, especially an inpatient, um, you don't really realize how important like these things are um and like you know that's just one example like the care plan um and like i was one of few patients that actually had a care plan there were so many other patients that didn't even have a care plan so it's just so ad hoc um and like you know i had a care plan but it was given to me um whereas other people maybe there was a care plan they weren't even given it i don't know um but 
there's just like these small little things that mean so much um and at the end of the day like it's your recovery it's it's your life it's what you need to work on um and I just feel like you know maybe it's easier for them to just write it up and then it's done but really to have proper like meaningful care means that I won't be coming back in like a month or two again in crisis. You know, there's things that we can do that really put the patient's voice at the centre of their care. Um, and it means better health outcomes. So, um, yeah, stuff like that really annoys me. All right. So since we're on the topic, let's just go deep. You ready? <laughs> I, I know, I know that you have thoughts on this one. intake, patient intake, and how the humiliating, dehumanizing, stripping of everything that is you, your shoelaces, your belt, I mean, you can't even wear certain clothes, then you're left with just feeling horrible. You can't have anything, no personal items. Um, Your family can't bring you certain things. You can only see your family on certain days at certain times. It is worse than prison. Yeah. It truly yeah. is. Yeah, that process is so like that's it's traumatic. It's tra- yeah, it is traumatic. And um, you know, I've had conversations with um someone I met in, in the psychiatric ward, and we often do wonder like, were we causing ourselves more trauma by being in a psych ward? Um and I mean, like I've had I've been in a situation in psych ward where I didn't have any of my clothes. I had to wear a special gown. Um, I didn't even have my own bra or socks. Um, and I had to wear this um, for several days until I, like, I asked for the doctor like every day, like, can I get out of this now, please? And I had to beg for like my pajamas back. Um, and like, that was just the most humiliating time for me. And, you know, I didn't want anyone coming in to see me in it. Um, it's just really awful. And to be in like in a place where you're not familiar and you're just wearing this like horrible brown gown with like no, like nothing else. Um, and you're not allowed anything. Um, it's just, it's not care. It's not care. Um, it just. <laughs> oh my God, this is awful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, God, I know. You know. And this part that sucks, excuse me. Yeah, oh. and I think you know, I do talk about that happening to me because, um, when I like left hospital, I was like researching like this protocol, and like there's nothing exists anywhere about this um it's called a refractory gown um and like there's just no information about it and I feel like um it's not something that anyone is addressing and just the trauma of like you have to be strip searched to get into it um by two nurses um and it's just I don't see how that's care like I'm sure there are like a whole range of so much better options for making sure that people are safe um, without having to completely dehumanize them, um, strip search them and like refuse access to like anything um, when they're kind of, you know, going through a really hard time. (laughs) So, you know. I can tell you that probably the hardest part is feeling so helpless, feeling like you have no say and no control and you're looking for help. And in that help, you're being further traumatized. This is not care. This isn't medicine. Medicine heals. The corruption of, of what medicine should be is what we're faced with. Yeah, I remember being so ashamed of it at the time. Like I felt like we call it the shame suit. Um, me and some of the girls I know who have been in it. Um, we call it the <laughs> right. suit yes. of shame. Good term. Um, 
but I remember even not telling other patients that were around me what it was. Um, so like one patient, um, she was allowed out and like she went to the shops and bought me a pajamas because she just thought I had no clothes. Um, and like I was just like I couldn't even tell her what like why I was in this thing. Um, and it's just it's so horrible because just everyone can see you and it's yeah it's just like this suit of shame of like look at her she's suicidal so she has to wear this um this horrible thing um and I mean it's happened to me and when I was in hospital I kind of became friends with a group of girls um and we're still friends now and all of us who were in there for being suicidal were put into this thing at one stage or another um and so I just feel like it's a really common occurrence that nobody is talking about um, and nobody knows about because unless you're in there, you don't know what happens. Um, and just really the trauma and the, yeah, just completely stripping away. Like before, even after you come in and you've been strip searched, your shoelaces are gone, the, the like ties in your hoodie are gone. Um, you know, you have to hand in your charger for your phone, everything else. Um, but then for that to happen when you're in there and there's, yeah, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to like prove yourself um, healthy enough to come out of it. Um, yeah, yeah. And they, they don't even talk about, people don't even talk about this very often unless you've experienced it or you've been through it with yourself or a family, close family member. Mm-hmm. Then you also have that whole other layer of, you have to navigate the space with other people and you've got people who want to bully you because they're not in a very good, healthy place for themselves. Then you're getting bullied or you're getting ostracized. You're getting picked on. You know, you might find one or two friends because you're lucky enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough space because you have people here who are really low really suicidal you might have people who are going through some mania so they're like super all over the place and then you might have people who are you know really struggling with hallucinations or voice hearing and that kind of thing so you have all of these people in the same room trying to share the same space um so like as an autistic person who would be very sensitive to like other people's emotions and stuff it's really really difficult um and you know, I was just really lucky that when I was there, um, three other girls around the same age as me, going through the exact same thing as me. Um, so we just kind of clung on to each other. But I know other times when I've been admitted, I've been there, and it's just been all these middle-aged men, and it's been really scary. And you know, you're kind of you're not sure, you know, you're not sure if you feel totally safe in that environment because yeah. um, you're not to, you don't know what what other people have ended up there and stuff so it can be quite terrifying um and yeah I I'm not sure if lumping everyone who's struggling with their mental health in some way lumping us all in together in the same room is really um can be defined as care um (laughs) because chaos definitely the definition there (laughs) care versus chaos. chaos Yeah. There you go. There's that's that's your first article, care versus chaos on the healthcare system. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Zoe, thank you for sharing your experiences and thank you for sharing your insights on that. That no worries. It's one of the things that needs more discussion from us. Yeah. It really does. And anything that that you can do with the training and the resources and the knowledge and experience that you have will be greatly appreciated by the rest of us. I can tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, you're on on this side. So if that, those things have been really tough, what's been the best part? What's been the best part of this autism journey for you? Um, I think for me, it's been knowing that I'm not alone in the way I struggle the things I struggle with um I suppose one part is like being able to look back on my life and maybe the things that um made me feel like I was a bad person or 
whatever or it's just acting up or just being a bold child and um, being able to reframe all of those things as you know the misunderstood child the child who was actually really stressed out but nobody kind of knew how to deal with it um so being able to kind of reframe all of that so that I feel better about myself in general um and know that I was always just trying my best to get along and sometimes you know sometimes maybe I did things or reacted to things in a way that was kind of misunderstood and like that's okay um and then also I suppose you know I would have really struggled with friendships and keeping friendships and socializing and kind of realizing that there's like a whole group of people out there who struggle in the exact same way that I do and actually when we socialize with each other there aren't those challenges there it's it's easier <laughs> so I think for me kind of knowing that there's like a whole group of people out there who are the exact same as me and um, being able to just surround myself with lots of autistic people has been like the best thing for me. I agree it has <laughs> been the best thing and one of the best things of the best things is that you created a wonderful space for us to come together and, and be together as autistics yeah. in a very specific autistic space. So yeah. if you have one thing that you would like to share with someone who is just starting their autism journey today, this is, they're just learning all this about themselves. What's the one thing you would like them to know as they begin their journey? Something that's really meant something to you. Um, yeah, I think kind of that process of where you're looking back on your life, like maybe there's things that you've done in the past that, you know, never really made sense or things that made you feel like you're a bad person or a horrible person um, and just taking the time to like go back and reflect on your life reflect on the things that might have happened in childhood and adolescence that really say like oh that that was definitely an autistic thing um, and being able to just reframe the narrative of that um, because you know I do feel like we do accumulate kind of a trauma from not knowing and not being understood. Um, and I actually got EMDR therapy um, and we went back and um, looked at different things that happened and re like kind of reintegrated my opinion on what happened. Um, and that was really beneficial to me. So I would say like, go to trauma therapy you know trauma therapy isn't isn't just for like really ex, you know really extreme horrible things but it also can be just that accumulated things that have happened because we were trying to live as neurotypicals and but we weren't so um I would say definitely kind of try and find um a way to just reframe those narratives that you've built up and if you want to go to trauma therapy I definitely recommend EMDR <laughs> So many people have had success with that. And that's such a big, mm. it's a, it's a tool. It's just a tool that's going to help. And it, it's one of the things that really is where you have to, when you're reframing those things and you're looking at them with this new knowledge, when you look back at your life, the other part of that is also just the, the compassion and the forgiveness of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, forgiving yourself. And yeah, I feel like it gave me so much compassion for myself. And to like think about, you know, child Zoe, um, who was freaking out about wearing a car seatbelt. And, you know, nobody was like, well, why is she suddenly refusing to wear a car seatbelt? And I was like, but it's rubbing against my neck. I can't stand it. Um, and, you know, or like just getting in like really freaking out about just really like small things that you know I'd look around and like nobody else is freaking out I couldn't understand why nobody else was really angry about certain things but um yeah just taking the time to to really just look back um because I think it really will give yourself a, just a sense of compassion for who you are and like how far you've come um you know we are still here we are still here that is resilience <laughs> that is strength that is survival of the greatest degree, my friend. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. That <laughs> we are very courageous people. Zoe McCormick, founder of the Autistic Art Club. 
Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your autism story. Thank you for sharing your beautiful gift to the autistic community and this beautiful autistic art space that happens on Saturdays. Yeah. Four cycles and two cycles off. And you can participate in many different ways. You don't have to just show up to a Zoom. And you can show up to Zoom, but you can do it any way that works for you. You can also just do it privately through email or through Zoe's blog. I'll have all the links in the show notes below. Zoe, you are an incredible human. You are a blessing in my life, not just on Saturdays, but every day. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me and having like proper discussions about real things. Um, It's really, it's refreshing. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you for sharing and being vulnerable, vulnerable and courageous in sharing your story and your experiences. Yeah. The more we do it, the more we start the conversation, the better it'll be for the next person. Yeah, hopefully. Hey, you're going to make a difference in this. I know. <laughs> I know you will. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener and thank you for adding your voice to our story.